Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and if I could live in any fictional historical period, it would definitely be King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, mid- Middle Ages type thing. Jeez, you're gonna die. My it's name fictional. is Caitlin. You're gonna get just stabbed by some random person who's walking by you. It's true. Um... My name is Caitlin, and if I lived in a fictional period of time, I would definitely live next door to Mr. Darcy, and Elizabeth would just not have even had a chance. <laughs> I'm Cameron, and I'm going to really lean into the fictional of this fictional time period, and I'm going to snag Terra Nova, which is a human colony 65 million years BC, surrounded by dinosaurs. Ooh, of course. <laughs> yep, that sounds like Cameron. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to lean really far into the historical period. I'm Kristen, and I would want to live, I'd want to be part of the 400 in Gilded Age New York. Ooh. I'm Samantha, and I would love to have tea with Jane Austen and then have her write witty and disparaging things about me to her <laughs> sister Cassandra in a letter. Yes, please. <laughs> so beautiful. That would be a privilege to be roasted by Jane Austen. She would do it so well. (laughs) A big welcome to our guest, Samantha Hasting, author of The Last Word, The Invention of Sophie Carter, which comes out July 14th, and A Royal Christmas Quandary, which is available for pre-order now. So very exciting. Uh, Samantha, can you tell us a bit about your books? Thank you. Yes. Um, The Last Word is set in 1861. Um, Lucinda Levitt's favorite author dies before finishing her serialized novel, so she decides to discover who the woman was and how she would have finished her book. So that's that one. And then The Invention of Sophie Carter is set in 1851, and two sisters pretend to be the same person so that they can go to London and attend the Great Exhibition of 1851. They meet two perfect suitors who both think they're in love with Sophie Carter. Samantha, I'm going to love that book. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) And then A Royal Christmas Quandary is kind of like a Netflix or a Hallmark Christmas movie, but it's a book. And it's set. <laughs> I know. I love it. A little That's cheesy, awesome. lots of fun. Set in eighteen. The way we like it at Christmas. Mm-hmm. So, at Windsor Castle, someone miss. Someone loses a prince. <laughs> that sounds very irresponsible and very large to lose. Was it? Is it a, a stupid prince who loses himself and then can't find himself again, or is it somebody who loses a prince? Uh, you know. Or is it more of like a metaphysical being lost? That's true. We can't we can't spoil this book. It's true. Totally meta. Um, Lord George <laughs> Worthington works at the Foreign Office, and he loses one of the princes who's a suitor to Princess Alice. Queen Victoria won't be very happy. <laughs> well, that sounds delightful. Uh, listeners, be sure you check out her books. Um, So today, from probably what you heard from those book descriptions, we have the master on historical fiction here in person to tell us everything we need to know about writing historical romance. Um, So tell us about historical romance, Samantha, and why you like writing it particularly. Um, I love reading it. So, of course, I like to write it. Um, I really like the research. 
You know, you mentioned romance, but I really wanted to talk about toilets. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I'm serious. I like underwear, too. I write about it a lot. Um, Just for for Sophie Carter, um, when I was researching the Great Exhibition, they had the first public toilets. They were called monkey closets, and they cost a penny to use. That's all I had to say. That's <laughs> really interesting. Excellent. And Europe still charges to use the toilet. So yes. that hasn't changed. 20p. It's gone up. Yeah. Too many. <laughs> Do they still call them monkey toilets, though? No. Or monkey only. closets, excuse me. Monkey closets. <laughs> yes. yes. George Jennings right. was the inventor. How, how did you stumble across this fact? Yeah. <laughs> I just read so much about the time period and about... Just the interesting things. And so for me, like, toilets are interesting. Showers are interesting. They do exist in 1851, which a lot of people didn't know. Um, Charles Dickens had one, but he never wrote about it for some reason. Weird. Maybe he didn't realize that his, you know, personal hygiene would be so interesting to us. I know. So many years later. Well, he should have thought about it. I know. Maybe Come we on, should Dickens. all write in our journals a little bit more about our showers. I'm telling you, historians would appreciate it so much, though. Like, if if we wrote about, like, table settings or something, it would make a big difference in the future. Or could. If I wrote about my table settings, people would just judge me in the future. That's <laughs> all. <laughs> <laughs> so when you are looking for, like, because it sounds like all of these are pretty Victorian, all of the books that you're reading. So did you start like loving that period or where do you find the books to start researching all of it? So um, my bachelor's and my master's are both focused on Victorian history. Oh, amazing. And so I also love the time period. I grew up reading, you know, Jane Eyre. Um, I'm going to say Jane Austen, but we all know she's earlier. Um, But George Eliot, Mrs. Gaskell, even though we call her Elizabeth now. um, Dickens, even though we have a mixed relationship, he wasn't nice to his wife. I don't like people who aren't nice to their wives. I feel like you'd probably that's, that's fair. end up with difficulties <laughs> with a lot of historical writers. Then. True. Maybe who are men. All of Sorry, them. Sorry, Caitlin's feminism is going to start coming out really hard in this <laughs> podcast. All Never of those put it away, evil Caitlin. men. Keep it out always. <laughs> oh, yeah. Anyway. So that kind of leads to another question, though. So obviously, when we're talking about historic characters, there's vastly different societal norms about what's acceptable and what's not. How do you go about making characters that are uh, bridging the gap between a character that is likable and a character that is accurate? That is so important. Um, I think people are used to Dickens, so they're used to really passive female characters. And not all women were. And uh, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich has the most amazing quote. She said, well-behaved women seldom make history. And so there are 
fascinating women. And I actually wrote down a couple children's books for you. Um, Bygone Badass Broads, 52 Forgotten Women Who Changed the World by Mackenzie Lee and Petra Erickson. And then Bad Girls Throughout History, 100 Remarkable Women Who Changed the World by Anne Shen. So we want movers and shakers when you write fiction right now because no one wants a passive character. She needs to do something. Yeah, it seems like all the adaptations of like Mansfield Park especially have recast Oh, what's the main character? Fanny. Fanny Price. Fanny as a Yeah, I I love that people like interject Jane Austen's actual letters and stuff into some of those characters because it makes her so much more active and interesting than the original. So true. We were talking about persuasion on a video chat with Alexa Dunn and Jenica Cohen, two other YA authors, and Anne doesn't do very much. (laughs) So if you want to adapt it or even write for that period... You need to read books that are being published right now because characters are more active. So I have a question, um, and I've talked to you about this a little bit before, so it's cheating to ask you this right now. But when you are choosing, and I'm stealing your, your question, Cameron, when you're choosing a, um, a time period, do you like to choose just a general year? Because I mean fashion and and events and whatever else change pretty drastically from year to year just like they do now. I mean, setting a book in... 2019 versus 2020 would be quite a drastic difference. Yes. (laughs) Um, But um, do you choose an event to focus your books around or do you take just a general like 1841 sort of or like the 1840s kind of of an approach? Well, with my three books, the years are all very important. Obviously, the Great Exhibition was in 1851, so you can't fudge that one um i just love that um the crystal palace if you don't know too much about it they built the building out of glass this, over trees in a park it's just so fascinating and they and had toilets closets <laughs> <laughs> you can't forget the toilets awesome they also had concessions who would have thought Let's have all this cool stuff together and let's sell bath buns. They did. Um, And then the last word is inspired by Elizabeth Gaskell. If you know, um, I just lost the name of the book. (laughs) Um, Her last. North and South. Not North and South. That's her best book. Her last book. She didn't finish writing it. It was Wives and Daughters? Yes. Thank you. Wives and Daughters, she didn't finish writing it. She died. And so I wanted to set my book in the same period where they were doing serialized novels and authors died, like Charles Dickens in the middle of Edwin Drood. My older sister um, is absolutely terrified that authors that she reads will die so she doesn't read series until they're finished <laughs> safe well that's that's i mean it's happened robert jordan it has it, and yeah others it, too so except like, brandon yeah. sanderson was better you can't say it well yeah i agree though so. yeah you can't actually say that. <laughs> sorry oh dear 
Sorry, <laughs> so Robert why Jordan. is it? Yeah, poor guy. I I read all of them, so he can't complain. So how does having a time period or or like is it your fascination with those events and those historical things that makes you want to center a plot around them, or is it um, just easier, or why is it that you choose to do it that way? I'm always more interested in the character, to be honest. The event is lovely background. Um, I never let it get in the way of the story or the romance, which, come on, why are we reading anyway? For them to kiss. (laughs) So, um, but again, Victorian, there are very specific social and societal norms. Um, You just have to be careful for what class you're in. If you're writing upper class, which most people do because it's so much easier. Um, Because they actually have money and free time to do something interesting besides trying to stay alive. Um, You have, and also, so you have to follow the rules or you have to let the reader know that you're breaking them. But you're so clever that you're not going to get caught until you do. No, that was great. So you've talked about um, being accurate in terms of years, you know, centering, making sure the events line up with the time period. What would you say, um, how important is accuracy in regards to like hairstyle, clothing, decorum? Do you have to be spot on or is there a little room to fudge depending on, I guess, what what kind of historical fiction you're writing? Um, definitely. I think you should be mostly correct like always, do your homework. Um, are you going to have anachronisms? Probably. We all do. Um, but fashion changes, like you said, about from 1999, or sorry, to 2019 and 2020. But if you were to write a contemporary book and describe clothing from the 80s, we would think you were ridiculous. Actually, some things are going back in. But... <laughs> Um, (laughs) The same thing about Victorian. You need to know what they're wearing in 1851 versus 1870. I love underclothing. So we can talk about bustles versus crinolines. Um, Ten years before that, they're wearing 20 pounds of petticoats. Can you imagine how much they don't. Wow. I would prefer not to, actually. <laughs> Those showers came in handy. <laughs> <laughs> they were cold, though. They were from water on the roof, so they weren't heated at all. Oh, dear. So this is kind of throwing a wrench into... I we I always give people outlines, and then we don't actually ever follow them. I'm sorry. Samantha. Oh, no problem. But, um, all over the board. So, I mean, I feel like... People who read historical romances are really keyed into those details about what is um, appropriate and what is not appropriate and what would have happened in a romance, especially in in specific time periods and what wouldn't. Um, like just recently, I watched the new Emma movie where they had to go through like all of these levels of justification to allow them not to wear gloves during their dance, that the dance between Emma and um, Mr. Knightley. Anyway, and I was just thinking... So how do you um, write a romance that feels romancy to people now who are not super excited about wearing gloves or even about kissing sometimes or even about a lot of other things that feels exciting? I think for historical romance, it's so awesome because they touch each other with clothing 
and it's exciting. They touch <laughs> each other without clothing, just like hands, not even steamy. And it's super <laughs> exciting. Um, that, that... He kisses her hand. Oh my gosh, my, I'm going to have a heart attack. Um, so I think the romantic arc is easier to build because, man, you've got a lot of long way to go to get, you know, <laughs> anything going on. It's really true, though, because anyone who's seen the 2005 Pride and Prejudice knows Mr. Darcy's hand flex. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, literally, all he does it. is stretch his fingers, and you know that it's a really steamy moment. <laughs> well, maybe we should lean into that a little bit. Whenever we have romance writers on the show, all of us like, tell us about how you do that, because none of us write romance. <laughs> How um how do you create moments that alert your readers to the fact that something steamy is happening for the time period, but it might not be steamy for them in particular? I guess that's what I'm asking. Um, internal kind of like that hand flex is important. Um, also, just how you set up the scene in the 1995 Sense and Sensibility, the most romantic scene starts with sobbing. Emma is just so relieved to find out. Oh, not Emma. I'm sorry. It is Emma Thompson, but that's not her name in the book. <laughs> um, Eleanor <laughs> in the book is just so relieved that Edward is not marrying someone else that she starts to sob. And it's still like the sweetest scene ever. So I don't think you always have to have the setup. You know, it's a balmy night in the garden that magically no one knows that they're in there because the chaperone would know. Um, I think that's important. Also, I feel like you can only describe a kiss so many ways that it's the metaphors that you use to describe what it feels like. And that can really transport them to realize that oh my gosh, he kissed my hand. It's like lightning. When you're like, come on, that's super calm. But for them, it's it's exciting. And I also, sorry, Caitlin, you mentioned before about romance readers. I write for young adults. And so sometimes my editors will take out period appropriate words or slang because they don't think that young adults will know them. Um, but if you write Regency romance for adults, they're going to know what a Corinthian is. They're going to know what Dunn Territory is. They're going to know the ton. Um, so that makes a big difference who your audience is, if they're general audience, young adult, or if they're specific you know, Regency readers. Because they will notice everything. They will. <laughs> but they will also understand everything, though. So maybe it's two sides of... Of something good and bad. I don't know. <laughs> well, and sometimes you can co give it enough context that they know what it is without having to state that bricky means brave, you know, or, and also sometimes your editor, at least my editors for YA, I put, I taught, sorry, drinking chocolate. I said they drink chocolate in the morning. They always change it to hot chocolate because no one knows how terrible it is to drink drinking chocolate that tastes like dirt. <laughs> it does. Add cream. It doesn't help. 
All right, so we are about out of time for this portion of the podcast. Are there any final thoughts before we move on to the critique? So a quick review of how we critique. We try to be non-prescriptive, but if you'd like to check out the text of this submission and see all of our notes, you can see that on our website, listservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. So a quick summary of this week's submission. A young woman, bored with the socialite lifestyle, is accused by her brother's friend of not being able to pass as a man even if she was in disguise. She takes that as a challenge. What are some things we liked about the submission? Um, I love Shakespeare, so I loved all of her references to Shakespeare. And um, this one line, she said, Lud, she would even go as far to say that Shakespeare's ghosts lived a more eventful life than her, and they were dead. I love that one. <laughs> yeah, we, I thought that was funny, too. So I think she does a great job of establishing Arabella's personality, that she's bored, and that she wants to live life, and she wants to be interesting, and that if she's... And then there was another line I liked. If she settled down any further... She would be nothing but a heap of bones and satin lying helplessly on the floor. <laughs> I liked that one, too. Mm-hmm. I love that, too. And that, that was something I particularly enjoyed was the voice throughout this. I thought was very consistent. I could tell kind of what Arabella's worldview was in just the first few pages, and I appreciated that. I really liked that the first page has like Arabella wanting something like she clearly has ambition. And by the end of the submission, we have a goal of what she's going to do. So I felt like I have a clear idea of where this book is going. Um, I really liked the dynamic between her and the boy that comes in and talks to her who won't come into the room because he is not going to find himself in a compromised situation with a young woman. Definitely not ever. Never. I liked the line that um, after their conversation, or during their conversation, she says, that was the problem with knowing someone for most of your life is sometimes they knew far too much, which I thought was very easy to relate to. Um, and I also really liked the foreshadowing with Shakespeare. It seems like this is a retelling, maybe, possibly, of one of Shakespeare's plays. And then um, I liked how it was set up, like she's wearing her father's coat, so she's already wearing men's clothes in order to, like, foreshadow that she's going to try and sneak into this men's club later yeah i have a couple of things to say about that later as well but i liked how that was handled what are some things that can use a second look about the submission um i felt i feel like the first line is your formal introduction especially in a historical novel and i was sad to see that it was Shakespeare and not Arabella. Um, So I would love to see Arabella's words and not his. Also, I felt like there was a lot of background information and it was lovely, but it's better for a chapter two or three or even four. I will want to get it closer to the inciting event faster And I also wanted um, her to have more of a want. I I see that she wants to live, but I want a specific want, something worthy. Because just 
for a wager to go into a men's club, that's a huge risk with a very small reward. And I don't see how it pushes her any closer. If anything, if she's caught, she'd be forced into marriage even faster to save her reputation. I had a similar thought. It, it feels like it's great that we get stuff that she wants and, and the promise of a conflict later. But by the end of this submission, her main problem is that she's bored, which, while that's very relatable, is not exactly pressing. It's not... For, for me, boredom's not a page turner. Now, as soon as, you know, she gets caught at this gentleman's club and her entire world is burning down around her, well, there's some tension and some stakes <laughs> that I, that, you know, at least for me, might be more attention grabbing. So I do wonder if the book is starting a little early. I wondered about that too. Just like Samantha said, um, it does seem like that's a really, really, really big thing to do just out of boredom. And so I was looking for like she said, a bigger want or bigger stakes associated with getting into this this men's club because it could ruin her. And that's like her life. It's not just not getting to get ma- to get married. But at that time period, like if you didn't get married, that was maybe kind of a problem. Or it sounds like she doesn't want to get married. So maybe that's even bigger problem. I um, also had that same thought that the beginning seems kind of like a tour through the main character's life rather than a story that we're starting so i'm just restating everything samantha said but she said it better so that works out (laughs) i did Um, (laughs) some things that stuck out to me in particular i felt like i mean i loved the shakespeare quotes but i felt like maybe there were a lot of them and some of them required explanation like she goes into a long explanation explanation about henry the eighth and as somebody who really doesn't want to get married she doesn't have an emotional reaction to the fact that henry the eighth pretty much killed a bunch of his wives um and so it just felt like information that was just being well, just to clarify, it's, it's, that's enough. If two you is ask a lot. Could have two been is worse. It's quite two, a few wives. Is... Divorce, beheaded, died. Divorce, beheaded, Divorce survived. Beheaded. That last one, she's she's beaten the the statistics there. Um, but I mean, like, I she I, I was surprised she didn't have a more visceral reaction just to him in general because he went through them so quickly. <laughs> if she's casting herself in the role as one of them. And I, I, like I said, I really loved the Shakespeare stuff, but it did feel like it was a little bit heavy to me. I have a very small nitpicky note, um, but it probably bears mentioning. On page two, uh, Arabella is in, she's by herself and two people, she's thinking about two people who will return soon and that she'll see again. And it says, then her best friend and her husband, who happened to be Arabella's older brother, would be home from their extended bridal tour. But because of the way that it's written, my initial assumption was that both hers were referring to Arabella, and I was absolutely scandalized that Arabella had married her older brother. So, well, and she didn't even get to go on her own bridal tour either. I know. <laughs> there, there was a lot of question marks in my mind there. So just watch Antecedents. <laughs> um, does anybody have any final notes before we close? Um, just if the gentleman is the romantic hero... Just some more physical description. Um, I know that you're not supposed to, don't do like two paragraphs, but we have no idea what he looks like. And then several paragraphs later, it talks about his fiery hair. And I was like, what? So just, just ground us a little bit. Is he a hottie, but he's your brother's friend? Is he not attractive at all? Like, those little cues can give us a lot. Is he a potential suitor, or is he firm friend material? Making the right promises right from the start 
It's very important, especially if you're doing a switch, which it seems like this one is. We've got the boy she's interested in, quote unquote, and then the boy she's probably going to end up with, which I love that you can predict that from the first chapter. (laughs) I mean, we could all be wrong. We could all be very wrong. But I agree with those things. We're not. (laughs) But romance, it's predictable. That's something you need to realize going in. Romance is super predictable. The two names on the back, they're getting together, folks. Um, (laughs) That's why we read. Yes, we love it. We are in for the happily ever after. So what a romance writer has to do is make the journey fun. We know the ending, but make the journey unforgettable. And lots of kisses. Absolutely. Well, and that kind of going along with what you just said, like the promising the correct suitor at the beginning and making sure that the reader knows. It's kind of like it's kind of like um, writing a retelling where the fun part is getting to see all of the different beats that have a new twist on them but are the same. And so it's familiar territory. A romance is the same thing where we're like, we want to see the first kiss and then we want to see this and then we want to see. I don't know about Regent. I mean, this particular I don't know if the first kiss is even on the the table here, but you know, well, we it depends want to see... if you're steamy or sweet. Steamy? Okay. Oh yeah, chapter three. We're already having lots of fun. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you use beach sheets, <laughs> like the the save the cat method. Yes, chapter three. It's very helpful. Uh, awesome, which is helpful for readers because readers don't want to be surprised about the ending of the book. They don't want there to be a switch that they aren't expecting, right? That's not romance. If you are writing romance, you have to have the H-E-A, happily ever after. All right. To this author, thank you for submitting. We loved reading your work. And Samantha, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It was lots of fun. I don't get to talk about toilets with just anyone. (laughs) Well, we are always here for you. (laughs) Awesome. We'll do underwear next time. Yes, hold it to it. (laughs) Listeners, please remember to check out her brand new book, The Invention of Sophie Carter. Our next guest will be... Oh, I'm going to reread that because there's an extra S. Our next guest will be Holly Root, who launched over two dozen New York Times bestsellers before founding Root Literary. If you'd like a first chapter critique from Holly, get us your work by July 2nd. Thank you to our intern, Lindsay Owens and Alan Sangster, who's our sound designer. If you want to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome, or whine about how your writing is going, you can find us on social media or email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Please remember to like, share, and review the podcast. It helps us grow. For Lit Service, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.